and welcome to Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest this week is Philly from EcoAge. Would you like to introduce yourself, Philly? Thank you. Yes, I'd love to. Um, so, I'm Philly, EcoAge's um, fashion, textiles, and policy consultant. I love um, fabric and colour, and I've always enjoyed textile design. And I'm actually from um, a design background. My mum's a painter. I was always encouraged to be really creative around the house. And so it was sort of pigeonholed almost since birth, you could say, um, to do, be doing something creative. And so I went and did an art foundation course and um, enjoyed that and realized I love textiles. So then I went to um, Brighton Uni uh, to study print design. And it was there where I realized that um, everything to do with the print design was not necessarily amazing for the environment. There was quite a lot of waste water and some of the chemicals were quite um pungent and unhealthy let's say and this is not a situation unique to the university i went to i hasten to add this is um <laughs> this is a tale as old as time sadly um but there was one chemical that was so bad that the printing technician who was pregnant at the time couldn't actually be in the print room with us um because it could, the um, formaldehyde could mutate the unborn fetus or something horrible like that um so <laughs> So, kind of a red flag. Yeah, <laughs> a huge red flag. Bunting, if you like. And um, so then I quickly realised that I way prefer complaining to drawing. And um, I still draw in my spare time. But, um, now, I, now I'm a professional complainer, basically. And um, I changed tack, broke up with um, a boyfriend and ended up doing um, a Master of Design instead of a BA. And then went to India um, for the first ever time. And it really got under my skin. And I was working at um, a fair trade block printing, um, hand block printing company, which was absolutely divine. And my days were just so nice. And um, I struggle to look at my camera roll now on my phone because it was just <laughs> so fun. And um, I probably got new wrinkles just from like all the smiling I was doing. And we, um, we were sort of all just working there and doing the drawing as well. But also there was a huge sustainability angle there. And then... I got thinking really sort of seriously about sustainability, went back to that internship the following year, but only for half the stint and ended up um, sort of traveling around India and um, going on Google and sort of being like, hello, can I visit your factory? And um, then as soon as I touched down in a city and um, I, and then I'd sort of, sometimes the trend, the sort of conversations I had were really, really um, positive and sort of I saw some amazing things and things that were really reassuring and sort of allayed my, um, you know, my university pessimism. And then um, other things were quite horrific. And I used to wander around um, the streets of India outside factories with like little swimming pool testing strips. And, um, you know, that can sort of test for the phosphorus and stuff in pools. And I mean, I'm sure that proper scientists would, if one, any of them are hearing this, would be like, what the hell, this isn't accurate. But I'd um, just dunk those in the rivers outside and see how... Um, you know what the water quality was like um i'd learned a very basic bit of hindi few too many swear words with and um i basically just made my way around muddled through made some friends along the way and sometimes they'd come with me to the factories and like translate things or sometimes the factory and um, people spoke a bit of english far better than my hindi most of the time actually 100 percent of the time and um and i'd take surveys and sometimes i'd hear things like the water that we drink here makes my stomach like um feel really ill 
and I live really far away from my family and it was all sorts of um things that I found sometimes quite hard to listen to but obviously um it's all part of the industry that um and it shouldn't be this way but um it was just more it was just research and then I went back to the UK and started getting into really into natural dyes and a couple of times um used my own urine as a mordant because you can do that you can harness the urea um and it can act with the natural dyes to fix it onto the cloth which is um super cool um i made like these massive um like wall hangings made of like tiny postage stamp size no twice the size of a postage stamp actually um of all different kinds of um natural dyes on loads of different fabrics like um wool from like the himalayas that i collected to like hand woven cotton from jaipur and then some recycled polyester and stuff and i just tried to get a really big broad range of fabrics and then see how they'd all react with natural dyes and all different kinds of mordants like the metals that you mix into them and stuff to make them stick and so that was really fun and um then i went back again to um India and this time also went to Sri Lanka and Nepal and did sort of the same sort of stuff and just kept building my research. Oh, I did another master's that was for that. Um, so it's, I've got two essentially, but I, technically I don't have a BA. So it's not actually that much of a flex when I go, Oh, I've got two masters because I don't actually have a BA. So, um, mm. there you have it. But yeah, I spent a long time at uni and, um, then really wanted to work for EcoAge for ages because it seemed like it would really suit my personality and they were just, um, you know, doing loads of great things um but i applied for a role there that wasn't quite right um for me so then i did a little stint at a tote bag company i won't mention their name because um i didn't really enjoy myself there and um it was a bit greenwashy to be honest with you and um then managed to get into ecoage and my first day ecoage was the 19th of june 2019 it was a full moon um which is just um i really love that kind of stuff so that was good and i've been there ever since and now I sort of um, help our clients with all of the things to do with textiles and I've also started getting a bit more interested in policy so um, now I'm also the policy consultant and we're sort of um, doing a lot of different things like trying to help um, make sure that loads of um, the policies that are being developed around fashion and textiles and marketing to try and regulate our unstoppable juggernaut of an industry um, I'm getting really involved in that trying to like make sure that they're right and fit for purpose and so, yeah, hopefully um, the world's about to change. I do think 2022 is going to be the year. I said it on the 1st of January, and I think it's going to be the year, honestly, for sustainability. It's interesting because my guest in what will be last week now uh, started working with similar issues in the early 90s mm. and is still working on exactly the same issues. So, Yikes. yeah, we can, we can but hope. Mm, mm. But let's just loop back a little bit now. Can you tell us a bit about what EcoAge is, what you do, and I guess what is your sort of place, role in the industry? Where do you make your money? Yeah. Who <laughs> yes. Well, so EcoAge basically um, does a lot of things to do with sustainability. So we've got the technical consultancy, um, which is basically – the sort of people who do all the research and the carbon footprinting and all the sort of like i don't want to say grisly bit of sustainability because i'm on, i'm actually i'm on that team and um it's sort of the, the technical knowledge basically um which isn't digestible for everyone because it's um that it's so grayscale the ethics of the industry that um 
it has to be quite granular and um, it can sometimes be a little bit like overwhelming with the tech. So um, then there's, we've got the PR and the communications team who make everything digestible and appealing to um, wider audiences, um, which, because it's obviously you need to have, you need to be technically accurate, but then you also need to be appealing and alluring because else we're not going to get anywhere. And then we also have the events team where we sort of try and get um, sustainability and sustainable fashion onto sort of the global stage and sort of try and emulate like celebrity culture. If we want it, that's the aim. We want to make, um, we want to see people like big celebrities. Obviously, I don't, I don't actually know a huge number of celebrities, so I'm not going to embarrass myself. <laughs> but, um, we, we need to get big celebrities wearing the most sustainable looks we possibly can. And so Livia, um, our founder, basically started the green carpet challenge many many years ago and since and she um and she got a few of her friends really excited about sustainable fashion and made them wear it on the red carpet and since then it's just exploded in popularity and um, we now have like awards um that usually take place in italy but then we had to do a virtual one um over the pandemic like a lot of us we had to move to the virtual space and um, now I think we're going to be doing one in LA because it's nice to sort of mix it around the world, I think, and sort of so that then different designers can come in and stuff. I think it's um, I think it's good. And also all the celebrities are in LA, aren't they? So it, um, it's sort of, I think um, I'm very excited for next year, basically. And then we've also got the strategy team, which sort of, it's like the icing on the cake and the sort of helicopter out, bigger picture um, sort of stuff, which is really cool. I love working there. So where is EcoAge's position in this? I mean, how do you finance EcoAge? Ah, it's our clients. We're an agency. So the clients will either pay for um, the complete, like some clients pay for the complete service. So some people, we'd help them host events. We'd do their communications and we do their technical consultancy. And then other clients are like on different parts of their journey. Some people don't need to dial up the technical stuff because they're already nailing it. So they just need the comms or they just need the events and, you know, various combinations of those um, team streams, if you want. So so when Zara phones up and says, we need some help, then you sort of all spring into action and sort them out with a strategy, go through what they're doing. Yeah, well, we do, um, we'd do for the technical consultancy teams, we'd normally do um, an audit and we'd sort of then do a materiality assessment um, and we'd sort of speak to stakeholders and sort of try and get a holistic understanding of their operational, you know, sustainability performance. And then we'd also analyze them against their peers and public available information. And so it's all sort of as watertight as it can be. And, um, and then we sort of build from there. And something that I um, always think about is, although it's really tempting to work with like the most sustainable people ever, because it's always, because there's a definite alignment there isn't there obviously it, we also if we're going to change the world sometimes you have to work with the people who perhaps aren't performing so highly in sustainability because they need to be bought up because if they're selling a huge amount of product um, and have like you know a really broad influence if you want over the market then I think it would make sense to work with them as well to um because then you've got a big chance of changing the world if you know what I mean or trying to change the industry. Yeah, I'm just sort of thinking now, if there's a, a tote bag company in Totnes that makes 12 bags a week, they're not going to change the world. Do you want the real scumbags? 
essentially essentially yeah we all we're all global citizens we all need to work together so i think if you're looking at if you imagine the world as like a pizza if there's one slice that has actually every topping on you want you'd probably just try and get more toppings that you like and put it on the rest of the pizza so that's what i think everyone needs to be doing we all need to be working together and not alienating alienating anyone as long as no one's evil which i don't think anyone is i think everyone deserves their chance to try and be better because we all try and do that um every day as people don't we you'd hope you know i'd sort of think that there are companies and people that are truly evil or at least don't have humanity's mm. best interests at heart uh, i think you're right i think you're right but it's all about the inf- if you can change if you can change them then their influence could be huge all it takes is like one one person to one company one of the you know the evil big ones to be brave and actually you know start talking about things like degrowth and all of that stuff and then everyone else will follow suit i hope maybe i'm being utopian maybe i'm being a pipe dreamer but i do i really do think we've got to just be really optimistic and sort of obviously the world is in disarray i'm not disputing that but i think that there's a huge opportunity to stop slinging mud and just all try and work together because the climate crisis is upon us like firmly we're not even going to hit 1.5 degree limit are we we have to so i think Mm. it just seems a bit bickery right now the industry and we need to sort of all just be like look we all know that the world's effed we need to try and bring it back to the roots and just just try really actually try instead of just making these senseless targets that mean nothing that you don't end up reporting on. Um, let's just all just realise what we need to do and bloody do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering, can we really hope to achieve that without addressing the sort of element, elephant in the universe, the fact that we are just making too much stuff? Um, no, no, we can't. We have to address the fact that we're making too much stuff. I think personally that we need a cap on clothing production because earth is a huge day is getting earlier and earlier in the calendar year and obviously some nations have already passed their earth over huge day but i did check before i came on to make sure that i wasn't propagating any fake news and according to the earth over huge day website um the national no sorry the international average for earth over huge day is the 28th of july which is two weeks from today it's a halfway into the year isn't it basically yeah what does that actually mean um, so it's basically the point in the calendar year where we as humanity are using too many resources than the earth can naturally replenish itself. So we're basically stealing from our future in short. And um, it used to be, if you look at the graphs, it's just been going, again, talking about the importance of graphs, it's just going the exact opposite of what you'd want to see. Um, it's just, it starts up um, here in like maybe the maybe the 90s, I want to say, but it could be earlier. And then it, um, it's just sort of plummeting. There's a slight little blip, hiatus, anomaly um, because of COVID. And obviously everyone was using a little bit less energy because of the air travel and stuff. But now we're firmly back on track to um, environmental destruction. And um, I think that Earth Overshoot Day also estimates that at the moment we're using circa 1.7 Earth's worth of resources. And um, they're... Uh, every, like sort of so that's obviously ridiculous we can't have if you imagine one earth and then over half another earth needed i mean you couldn't even 
not even the creators of like Star Trek could do that. It's it's just ridiculous. And that's set to be four Earths by 2050. Yeah, I think we might just have to stop this recording now and <laughs> stick my head in a bucket of cold water. <laughs> um, it's just it's just another one of these statistics that uh, you look at it and you think, yeah, well, that's we're not going to manage that, are we? Um, same with uh, the graph showing uh, use of polyester, which just seems to be accelerating harder and harder. I know, and that's a finite. That's derived from a finite resource. So we're just what are we doing? <laughs> Basically, like we're just using these linear systems that have got us in so much trouble. It's not how people used to work. It's not how nature works. We're like an alien from nature. That's what we're doing. In nature, waste doesn't exist. Like things biodegrade and everything has a purpose. And here we're just taking resources and natural capital, making it into stuff, using it often once, and then just throwing it away. And not only throwing it away and wasting it, but actually wasting it in a polluting way. So it's not you're not really back to square one, you're sub below. You're like not even you're not even back to square one. You're way, way worse. Yes. So when a company comes to EcoAge and says, look, we're making all these lovely polyester garments. Uh, we're not paying our workers very well. Uh, we're not taking care of our waste. Uh, but we are selling a lot of stuff. And what sort of, what can you do to help them? Well, there's that phrase, a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. And so we'd sort of, the materiality, obviously you can't boil everything down to data and stuff. Um, which you'll dive into, I'm sure, and sort of results. But you have to, you have to start somewhere because else they're not going to change. And so you have, we, we'd look at their materiality and we'd see what their topics are that they need to focus on the most. And sometimes it will be materials when we'll have to do a whole material strategy and, um, encourage better use of materials. Then we'll do, probably do some training and do, um, maybe perhaps um, train designers to more responsible material selection. You have to bring everyone on board. You can't just sort of start dictating because it doesn't like, you know, in our lives, we know that if you start lecturing someone in the pub, you're not really going to get listened to. You have to sort of bring everyone up to speed and work and tell people why this is important. And so then there's training involved as well. Um, a lot of the time we do sort of bespoke training for their topics that they need to focus on. Sometimes it's regenerative agriculture. Sometimes it's, um, labour and workplace management. Sometimes it's um, you know more responsible material selection, circular design, um, responsible communications, and all of that sort of stuff. Because it's all part and parcel of just being better and being more sustainable. And there are, I um, would like to say that there are some people. Um, I probably can't say um, who they are, but I'm sure you can use your imagination. But there are some people who we just would not work with. We wouldn't even touch. So um, it's it's just one of those. When you mention communication, I see a lot of quite sort of um, twiddly communication these days yeah. where a company will say, oh, we're dead sustainable now. We intend to become fully sustainable within the next seven years. And if you're reading that, you sort of think, hang on, you're not actually committing to anything. You haven't said you've done anything. You're just giving a vague promise. Yeah. That's um that's that really annoys me. That's just classic greenwashing. Um, 
like more like better materials and all that sort of stuff. It's sort of like I heard a really good example that like um obviously you'd probably rather be punched than shot, but they're still bad. And so just because you're not shooting someone, it doesn't mean um that you're you're good. It's just because you're not doing the worst thing ever, it doesn't mean that you're not that you're good. Um oh. so with like classic what, you, what you're saying what you're saying is that if you're not shit doesn't mean you're good yeah basically yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly but then again it's back to that thing about if you spend all your life reordering words you can make anything sound good or bad like because there's also that phrase don't let perfection get in the way of good which i like because that does sometimes hold people back the good brands quote unquote sometimes people are too nervous to communicate even though they got something amazing um because they don't want to be called out for greenwashing. Because obviously everyone, people are more and more wising up to greenwashing. And a lot of people are aware that like, you know, if you see vague and misleading terms like eco-friendly, green, better for the planet, you are like, mm, really? How are you substantiating that? Are you paying people a living wage? Like, are you cherry picking elements, favorable elements of your operations that you want to communicate on? Like a lot of people do talk about materials because they're really easy to you know, visualize and see. But I think that we always say that our brands should be focusing on absolute, on everything that they can, because else you really can't be making any communication with confidence. You have to, like, you have to be doing, you can't basically be like, oh, we're using organic cotton, but we don't guarantee the occupational health and happiness and safety of our staff. Like, you can't, that is cherry picking and that's greenwashing. Yeah. Um, a good case of that sort of came to light in the last couple of weeks with the Higgs index and uh, things going on around that. Uh, I think two of my former guests were quite instrumental in that uh, because it sort of originated in Norway, I think. Yeah, it did. It did. Um, and congratulations to the Norwegian um, people who orchestrated that. Um, one, um, I really liked um, Tornado Bias and she's um, like a personal favourite work friend of mine. And um and I think that she um she and Ingen had quite a lot to um to do with that, um, which I think is great. And um yeah, it's basically just it's a it's a really good moment because it's sort of a wake up call for everyone that you can't just boil not everything can be boiled down to data. And obviously the ruling sites that it was that the application of this HIG MSI data to product level sustainability claims was, you know, in violation of the Norwegian um, Consumer and Marketing Authority's, um, you know, green claims code, if you want, or, you know, marketing standard. And so that basically, I don't know whether you know how um, the HIG MSI started. I was just about to say, should we loop back and talk about that a bit? Yeah. Um, so in... 2003, I believe it was, yeah, um, Nike developed its Materials Sustainability Index, and that was literally done to inform the design and make phases of um, a product, which is actually quite cool to be doing, especially, you know, some 20 years ago. That's quite obviously, you know, this is only talking about the materials, um, but that's really quite cool to try and influence designers with a tool because obviously not everyone's going to be a textile nerd like you it's i think it's nice to be able to have something to hold on to when you're designing so you have a bit of a vague idea as to 
why one fibre might, generally speaking, be better than another. But where it's gone wrong is that it looks at like mid midday to um, about two or three p.m. on an LCA cycle on the life cycle of a product. So it's cradle to gate, meaning factory gate, which is basically how things um, are produced and you know distributed and stuff. But it doesn't focus on anything about once it gets into the consumer's hands. So it doesn't look at the effects of laundering. Again, hard to quantify because you're not going to stalk someone around their house and um, look at how many times they launder it and do that to every person on earth and then work out an average. And also, yeah, it just can't, um, it's sometimes you don't, sometimes you just can't quantify these things. And then also there's the end of life stuff. So it doesn't recognize whether a fabric um, is biodegradable or renewable or um, can be recycled and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't really look at that. So it's, I think it's um, a little bit, fishy to give these lca results to consumers because it sort of makes people it does it sort of doesn't let them make informed choices because they aren't necessarily they don't generate accurate results when you look at the cradle to um, the gate really it should be looking at a measurement if i don't even think they should be in front of consumers eyes first of all because these the data even if it was cradle to grave which is the end of life or cradle to cradle which is how it can fit in the circular economy so that's from midday to midnight and beyond and so i think that um basically what we what is wrong with some lcas is that they're based on aggregated data from industry averages so they sort of take loads and loads of things and then they just generate this one number and that's not representative of really accuracy or um, best practice when you're trying to communicate it to consumers it's all very well and good like having these lcas behind the scenes and trying to get them to guide choices but they still should be as accurate as possible and they should be open source but really i think we should always be pushing companies to use primary data where they actually do their own studies on their own stuff and don't have to rely on these um generalized secondary data sets because that's where things are just things just get so blurred and um and it, the accuracy just gets completely derailed and then there's another layer of um you know doom and gloom if you then start communicating this to consumers because it's making people believe that they're buying something that's really sustainable or you know got less of an impact than another thing and actually this system um the hig msi didn't look at things that are quite crucial in the sustainability of a garment but that's because it was originally set out to just look at the um, design and make phases. So Nike started doing, sorry, I'll circle back. Nike started its um, material sustainability index in 2003. And then essentially, it ended up getting um, integrated with the developing SACS um, material sustainability index. So this index, that the Nike's one has been, caveated throughout that it was only going to be design and make and then it sort of because it happened almost 20 years ago it sort of now all just got fed into this cradle to gate thing which has now been communicated to consumers as a transparency exercise when really it's the methodology isn't really transparent not much it's not open source it's behind a paywall so i think if you're doing a transparency exercise such as applying something so complicated as data, I think that you should actually be um, also quite transparent about your methodology. 
but I think that it's good that the Hig has paused it, and um, because they've obviously realised that there are some, you know, some cracks, and so hopefully they'll just do they'll just do better, and they'll sort of my advice to them would be make it open source and look at the whole impact and push people to or fund people to take regular LCAs from primary data and encourage people to just use their own primary data. That's what I'd say. My understanding of it is that it's very much from the industry perspective Mm. and also a little bit suspicious because the findings were very good for the industry in that the most sustainable fabric you could use was polyester, which most people who have any sort of interest in the topic will sit up and think, hang on, that can't be right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's also because also of the like the boundaries. You, it, the LCAs that go in, obviously, as far as I understand, I actually um, haven't looked at the MSI very often because you have to pay to get in. And I had a f- couple of free trials and had to keep making loads of fake email addresses and um, then ended up, I just, I just ended up, essentially, I ended up um, not being very successful. And I think perhaps, I don't, I would don't want to say that I'm um, banned or anything, but I, d- I just, uh, I think that I've, um, I'm not, I haven't been successful in trying to get it again um, because I've made it, I've made a lot of fake email addresses and my, you know, my phone number and stuff always is the same. And I think it's just like, eh. What's, we're not going to let you have another free time. Yeah, stage you're welcome. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm not yeah. pretending I'm some sort of activist or anything. I think it's just a, <laughs> might be an administrative thing. But um, they, um, but you can put your own data in as a brand. And obviously, who has the most money? Um, it's going to be the market leaders who, um, you know, largely are um, fast fashion brands. So there probably is a bit of an incentive to... Um, Make one's own products um, be more sustainable, appear more sustainable than they actually are, or it's not necessarily lying, is it? Because if you're, if it's just looking at the cradle to gate, it's, it's again, it's like it's very clever, isn't it? Like it's technically, if you're just doing a cradle to gate LCA and you're ignoring all the other stuff, technically some fibers might look more sustainable than others. Like for example, a recycled polyester from plastic bottles, nothing's been extracted. But then my my problem with recycled polyester from plastic bottles is that it's basically a sustainability dud past the raw material phase. Because yes, you might be um, not extracting oil. You might potentially, potentially, if we could bold my words, um, that'd be ideal. But we can't because it's audio. But um, you're potentially saving plastic from um, entering the wider environment. But then past that phase. Um, it's still going to be releasing microplastics and it's still going to have biodegradability issues at the end of useful life. And also, it's probably not going to be recycled, especially to a textile's textile value chain, because the estimates suggest that less than 1% of textiles are actually recovered post-consumer and returned to the textile value chain. So it's just, it's just, it's very, I always say that it's like, look at, like covering your hand with a telescope and sort of, you know, it's willful ignorance, isn't it, basically? Um, that's the problem. But, um, and obviously, then some, if you're looking at like land use and stuff, some fibers like a natural fiber could be, um, could have a, you know, less favorable result on a cradle to gate LCA because it uses land. But sometimes it, 
LCAs typically only look at the bad, and you don't really measure the good with an LCA. So the fact that um, you know you could get some regeneratively produced cotton actually instead of salinating the soil and taking um, nutrients from the environment and all that sort of stuff and you know all the sort of conventional farming stuff instead of doing that it can actually nourish things and it can foster biodiversity and support ecosystem health and all that that won't be recognized by an LCA it might just look at the land use so it's sort of just like how can you compare this massive industry and how can you boil it down to just like a couple of like numbers perhaps the decimal point at the end perhaps not it's just i don't think that they should be consumer facing that's why i think that's it it's just too complicated and to comp to make it understandable you completely dilute the efficacy and um it's basically um not i don't think it's fit for purpose as an amusing little aside there you actually i think unintentionally gave the makers of plastic fleece a rather good selling point in that when you're talking about how they make uh, polyester fleece from uh, bottles Mm. and they use new bottles because given that you're making it from the new bottle you have made sure that that bottle doesn't get used the seven or eight times it could have been used hence that seven or eight times where it doesn't go into the waterways or gets thrown away in the woods so they're actually doing nature a favor by just taking it straight out of the chain and making it into a plastic fleece Oh my god, that was not my intention at all. That's what I should have circled back, just like the circular economy, um, which is neat. It's out there now. I know it's, it's out, out there. there. Patagonia are all over this. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> um, that's why I was being so bold about the potential, because obviously, plastic bottles um, can have a really high chance of existing, or a much better chance than textiles of existing in a closed loop, because they're just so easy to recycle. Um, mm. You know, and so. When fast fashion brands or when people make um, recycled um, clothes, when when they make clothing out of recycled PET, uh, especially from bottles, we have this we have this image of everyone sort of gathering them from the water's edge and stuff and saving the turtles. But actually, they're potentially disrupting a closed loop recycling system for one more linear line, um, one more linear consumption pattern where then it's going to have all of the same problems because it's not going to get recovered post-consumer. Well, it's not likely to be, and it's not definitely not going to be returned to the circular economy for, fa- for fashion because um, we're just lacking so much of the infrastructure that needs to be the scaled infrastructure. There's really cool tech out there that can manage um, some things that are quite nuanced to fast fashion, like the, the sort of fibre blends, like the polycotton fibre blends and stuff. Um, they're really they're a nightmare for waste handlers, and they're a nightmare for the environment because natural and synthetic fibers are plaited together, and so you can't let you, you can't separate them. It's really hard, and so the natural fibers can't biodegrade, or they can't, and then neither fiber can be recycled. So they're just sort of going to fester on landfill, off-gassing methane, um, CO two, all this sort of stuff as they try and fail to biodegrade. Um, in landfill and obviously we've all seen the atacama desert and um all of those sort of the massive like waste sites around the world and the um I, when i was in india i saw like bales of clothes being sold and people were wearing t-shirts that said like helen's hen night 2009 and stuff because someone obviously just got a t-shirt printed and just thought oh well i don't i don't want that anymore and maybe they maybe their marriage wasn't successful who knows they might want to get rid of the memory and um 
and then they just feel like they're offsetting in some way by giving it to charity. But there's this most recent Greenpeace report, Poisoned Gifts, and that name is so apt because it's cha- it's waste, it's dumping waste, masquerading as charity. It's just um, mind-bending because the like there's just so many clothes. Everyone has so everyone owns so many clothes that they just feel like, oh well, out of sight, out of my wardrobe, out of mind. Like I'm giving it to charity. Like it's going to raise money for all of these philanthropic causes and all this stuff. But really, it's just going to the quality isn't even good enough. Really often for it to be resold. So it's just. It's just a mass of unmanageable, polluting waste. Yes, yes. Back to the Higgs, though. Mm. I mean, that sort of made out that polyester was more environmentally friendly than natural wool, which I know caused a bit of an uproar, a massive uproar, and much mocking in the press here in Norway, at least. Yes, it did, and that's because of the system boundaries. Like, it just comes back to, it's just not true, is it? Like, you can't, forget all the data how can a finite resourced material that doesn't biodegrade be presented as a more sustainable option than wool that could potentially be um grown regeneratively you grow wool don't you you're a wool grower um can although there are there might be some emissions and stuff like everything's got an impact and Wool can biodegrade. It's often laundered less um, because of its inherent, you know, antimicrobial properties and anti-odor properties and all that sort of stuff. Um, it has an affinity with all all dye stuff, so you can use natural dyes on it. Um, you can use synthetic dyes if um, if you want. I'd always use natural, and um, and it, it and people keep it in their wardrobes for longer, typically because um, it, you might have a higher quality item, perhaps so you might be more inclined to hang on to it more. And obviously, we all know that the longer you keep something in your wardrobe, the smaller its environmental footprint is. So it's just it's just the, com- the comparison of fibre groups. It just gets us, like, they both exist, and we're not going to get rid of one. Um, so to why, like, why is Hig trying to compare them? Because you should, I just think that you shouldn't be like, I think per- we all have our own personal opinions. My personal opinion would... I'd, I'd choose wool if I was buying something. But I just think that you can't really, they have such different boundaries in their impact. Like the fact that wool's renewable, first of all, surely it should get rewarded for that. It's just, it's very much skewed towards a certain fiber group, I think. And when you look at the entire, when you look at from midday to midnight and beyond, one of the fibers, wool or natural fibers, I think performs much better and is potentially a more sustainable solution but i don't think that i think that it's wrong to compare the fibers because basically all products should just be better do you know what i mean and i think that they shouldn't be mixed in a in a fabric blend that leads me to something which i've been wondering about Mm. has the higgs msi actually caused damage real damage because i see a lot of high-end brands now making stuff out of which looks like wool Mm-mm. where I think if they were really being honest and sensible, they would make it entirely out of wool. But instead they make it out of these rather fantastic wool, polyester, this and that blends. And these are brands that profile themselves as being very environmentally friendly and sustainable and probably 
very much according to the Higgs index. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> a lot of people use the HIG or were using um, the HIG. They they had this huge transparency program um, where Narona and H&M were the first two sort of guinea pigs. Um, and obviously, we know where that's ended up. Um, so <laughs> a lot of brands use them. I mean, the Sustainable Power Coalition, which um, essentially owns HIG, um, they're members represent $845 billion annual revenue. So if you're, basically what I'm saying is that it's so widespread and HIG data is everywhere. So if these brands that you're talking about, the high-end ones, have used HIG data, um, it, might, it might have ac- accidentally given fake news that one fiber is more stable than another, hence these fiber blends. I've seen them myself as well, like a gorgeous merino wool then blended with like a bit of recycled polyamide. And it's like, ah. why? <laughs> it is, it's ridiculous. And until I started working EcoAge, I actually didn't, it didn't even occur to me. I, will, I actually have a research book that I wrote where I was like, oh yeah, you can actually um, mix this fiber to reduce the overall impact of the fiber. Um, and then it was um, my old um, manager who was like, oh, yeah, of course, then there'll be end of, um, end of useful life problems. And I was like, oh, God, of course. Like, because I, I was at, I at uni was only focused on the first bit, like being like, oh, yeah, oh, my God, you can blend recycled polyester with, with things to just reduce the impact of a normal cotton. But it, that's just nonsense, isn't it? That mm. is, like, obviously, if you're mixing a plastic and a, something that will biodegrade, what are you doing? Like that, the picture of the pair of jeans? But it looks like a circulatory system with the um, elastane just poking out through it. Um, that's quite harrowing because obviously when it when the jeans when the cotton breaks down, that all the elastane's left, and there's a lot more elastane in that pair of jeans in the image than um, I thought there would be. I thought it would just that's, the fo- that's the photo that was doing the rounds on Instagram about a year ago, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was on that <laughs> wasted page. Yeah, horrific. Yeah, really weird. I mean, it was horrible to look at. So with all this excess of clothes being shipped off to God knows where, how does that sort of impact the circularity of things? Oh, God. Um, it's it's obviously not circular. Um, it's very, very linear and polluting. And there's a lot of things that designers can do to be more sustainable. But I think that that's – I'll talk about that in a minute um, because basically – we're disrespecting Earth's natural capital. Um, we're using it, polluting it, and um, just almost yeah, throwing it back in its face as unmanageable waste. Um, it's sort, it's sort of so like offsetting as well. It's sort of like, oh well, we don't have any waste. We don't have any textile waste in our country, so um, so we're really good. But then it's sort of like pushing it around. We're not acting as a we're not acting as a globe basically. And I know that that's, again, utopian of me. But it's sort of like, you can't, you should stop seeing it as a country problem and look at it as a global problem. Like the waste is still there in the world. Um, So therefore, no one's won. No one's winning when all this waste, if all this waste exists. And so I don't know why we're in such a mess, but I think it's a few, we've all got our role to play. But like, the fashion brands should, I think, stop overproducing. There's also, they haven't, so I think the policy needs to step in. 
Then there's also the failure of recycling systems currently because they just haven't um, caught up as quickly as um, fast fashion has sort of started having its effect. Then there's also a lack of funding for the scale, for scaling the infrastructure and scaling the innovations to deal with the recycling waste and the recycle well to recycle the waste. Um, and then obviously consumers could potentially buy less. Um, I know, sorry, my house minutes right now, but there's an Amazon package through the door every day in my house, at least. And here I am working for the environment, and then I have to sometimes leave a prod, leave a call to, co to quickly go and answer the door because someone's polyurethane trousers have arrived or something, and I'm like, ah, yikes! If my own if my own friends aren't listening to me, what the hell are we going to do? But um, I also think that too much onus is put on the consumer. We've all we should all have our like we should all be doing everything we can, whether you're an influencer, a policymaker, a designer, a brand, a retailer, you know, a waste handler, a, anyone. I think we, we all just need to try and realise the urgency of this mess. And how many more mountains of clothes are going to have to, you know, completely ruin a pristine landscape? Like, are we all going to have to just be up to our eyes and old polycotton tops that can't be managed? Um, is that what it's going to take? I don't know. We all know the answers, and it's circular design. I told you I'd circle that. And it's um, that sort of using mono materials, um, designing for disassembly so that things can be, you know, you can quickly get, get a zip out to replace it, or you can quickly get take the buttons off so that it can be better, um, it can be dealt with better by the infrastructure, the recycling infrastructure. Um, there's also loads of other things you can sort of design for disassembly. You can um, do use fit. You can have fitting, like where you no sorry fixing, where you like fit where you can send things in to be fixed. There's a lot of stuff going on at the moment where you can sort of have a lifetime guarantee of a product. And so if you, if something goes, let's say well, I don't know a bit of a handbag goes, you can get that component fixed instead of having to chuck the whole handbag away, which is quite good. There's obviously resale. Which is good, but obviously, if there's overproduction, it's just it's a little bit of a plaster, in my opinion, um, which is obviously quite difficult. And then there's obviously share rental, but that's got its whole. Um, that's also if it's done well, great. But if it's and for example, like if let's say you wanted to buy a Vera Wang dress for a wedding, and you knew you were going to wear it once, and then um, she says, "I definitely wouldn't do that. I couldn't afford that." But um, then. Um, Maybe renting one would be good because then it's more it's more um, accessible to a wider market. You can share the same dress could potentially do like let's say thirty occasions or or more hopefully, um, and all just be from the same components, the same resources, the same materials. But then also if it's done badly and it's sort of just used as a greenwashing exercise by a fast fashion brand, like how many times are you going to rent that garment? How? What's the supply? Like, what's the supply chain of it between um, the rental platform users and all that sort of stuff? Like, there's a there's two sides to every coin, basically. And the more I learn about this industry, the more grayscale it is. And it's just like, what? Like, it, the solutions. I always come down to do better for the environment and the people, and try and limit your harm. Well, limit your harm. Don't try. Actually, limit it because it is possible. It strikes me that quite a few of the points you mentioned are 
really dealing with the symptoms rather than the actual cause of the problem. And also, mm. you mentioned, um, well, it's really shaming consumers, isn't it? Oh, we must all do better, we must buy less, we must be more informed and so forth. But is that coming from the industry itself? Is, is a bit clever to say, oh, stupid consumers, you're destroying the world whilst they're pumping out all their stuff? I totally agree. I really do think too much onus is put on the consumers because it alleviates the fashion's guilt. It alleviates the industry's guilt. It's so convenient, isn't it, for people to, the, for the fashion brand's communications to say, oh, yeah, you know, do this, do that, consumer. But really, if you were producing less stuff and it was made nicely, we wouldn't need to be teaching responsible consumption. I completely agree with you. I think it's we all need to play our role, like the fashion brands as well. They need to stop using planned obsolescence and perceived obsolescence with their fleeting trends, with um, their poor quality materials. Obviously, I'm generalizing, but the poor quality materials that can't actually function in a circular economy, even if we were effectively moving towards one. So we can basically agree that all fashion must die? <laughs> It would be convenient from a utopian perspective for us all to walk around um, naked, obviously. But the fact this is the problem that I've been facing um, lately is that it's it's we can't be utopian anymore. Like it's we are where we are. Like this, like the theory is obviously has a narrative, but the reality has a different narrative, and and there's a lot of sort of stuff going on LinkedIn where everyone's arguing, everyone knows that everything's effed and um, and we all know that things need to be talked about urgently and acted on ur even more urgently. But there's this sort of loggerhead that's not, we're not going to get anywhere if everyone keeps fighting. The fact is that synthetic materials exist. The fact is that um, some, you know, some cotton's bad, some cotton's good. All we need to do is just work with what we have and try and to try and make it better. Let's address overproduction. Let's just put a cap on things so that we stop what we're doing and stop just stop um, you know the polluted the pollutant juggernaut in its tracks, basically, because you know else we'll be using four Earth's worth of resources. And 2050 is not even that far away, is it really? And God knows what the planetary what the atmospheric temperatures will be by then. Mm. I just wanted to interject that it's not only clothes that's the problem here now, because I mean take electric cars in Norway the government decided that electric cars were good mm. uh, made it easier to buy one through uh, less taxes on them so a huge amount of people have then parked sold their fossil cars and buying thousands and thousands of electric cars now there's no way anyone's going to tell me that we're saving the environment by producing a few hundred thousand new electric cars Mm-hmm. That is true. That is true, isn't it? Yeah. Because if you're making new stuff, like we have all the stuff that we need, um, in a way, it's so difficult though, isn't it? Because you do need to innovate, but it, if it's wasting something that already exists, is that there's an argument for using what you have until it's worn into the ground. But if that's a polluting car, let's say, it's it is it's really it's really difficult to weigh up the ethics. I don't envy policymakers, because um, I just there, is there a right answer? 
I mean, what's your thought? The, the result is, of course, that uh, we have thousands and thousands of fossil cars, perfectly usable, standing around, which aren't being used up, which is quite mm. equivalent to new clothes being thrown away, I yeah. guess. Yeah. You're right. I suppose then, I suppose if it was up to me, I'd probably break the cars down and try and... Yeah, if they... Car makers were really serious about saving their environment. They'd make engine upgrades, which they would offer to fit, to make them run with less emissions. Mm. But of course, that doesn't earn you as much money as selling you a new car. No. Everything's about money, isn't it? And just think that, just think that money is an exchange for resources. It's ridiculous. Have you heard that um, Alan Watts? Not the Alan Watts that everyone knows from YouTube, but a different guy from the past he um he compared the u.s recession in the 30s i think my history's a bit rusty but um he said that like um, money is an exchange for resources which is like so money is inches basically it's a measurement so when you're it's when they say there's a recession we created money to like when it's like building a house and saying oh yeah we've got plywood we've got bricks we've got mortar we've got door frames we've got everything <gasps> we've run out of inches oh no we've got to stop building because we've run out of inches like it's just nonsense that's and that is that i've never forgotten that um what is it quote case study thing observation concept. yeah concept <laughs> there we go um i think it's really cool that because it is just there's no less there's nothing less when there's a recession. So there's no less resources. There's no less trees. There's no less um, fresh water. It's just that the measurement's gone. So we've all just put this sheet. We all just break our necks, don't we, to and fall over ourselves to get more measurement of the resources on Earth. I think that's uh, true for a lot of the world of finance. And then we're not even contemplating uh, Bitcoin and crypto stuff, which is completely... Oh, yep. it's way beyond me that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to mention uh, EcoAge have been making films as well, haven't you? Yeah, we've been making. Um, Tell me more. I will. I will. Um, we've been so EcoAge first of all did um, Livia's friend with this great director called Andrew Morgan, who is just the coolest guy ever, and he, um, with a little bit of help from us, did the True Cost film, which is a feature-length film that was on Netflix when I was at university. Um, that was about, um, you know, what well, everything we've been speaking about, basically. Um, and sort of, Very influential like, film. Yeah, yeah, really cool. Like, I, every time I watch it, like, sometimes if I'm having a bit of a sort of unmotivated day, I just put it on in the background. And um, not all the time, I'm not mad. But, um, you know, <laughs> sort of, probably at least twice a year, I sort of just put it on in the background and I'm like, yeah. I'm doing the right thing. Like this is this is it. Um, and so we still work with um, um, Andrew and his team, and we've started doing little ones called fashionscapes, um, which love the name. Um, obviously, I'm not biased, and um, they're sort of looking at making quite big, complicated issues like living wage and the circular economy um, digestible and sort of like a bit more. I suppose in a way it's sort of like things are just getting shorter, aren't they? Like Instagram videos and stuff. So maybe we're evolving really quickly, humans, and we can only have interest for 
short bits of time, or maybe they maybe that that it's just a more effective way to learn. But we've been using um those to try and sort of be a vehicle for change as well, and sort of um fostering a, a you know an awareness raising sense, I suppose, in all these issues. And um so yeah, they're really interesting. Um, I really enjoy whenever I'm um sometimes I sort of do a bit of help on those projects but not it's not my area at all um but if ever i if ever i'm asked to do anything i'm I, i'm like yeah god i'll drop everything yeah i love it it struck me though that getting the true cost on netflix was a i don't say stroke of luck a genius move because of course what you're doing unless it gets out and is seen or heard by people it's not really doing much but getting uh-huh. it a film like that which was massively mentioned in media and talked about and was shocking on netflix meant that the message was disseminated pretty efficiently yeah exactly that's why like i suppose the eco age events team do so well with the green carpet fashion awards and stuff um you know getting getting these topics that aren't you know no one likes being told that we're living on a dying planet and um and that basically we're all greedy greedy like um consumerist or self-interest grubs do we no one likes being told that but obviously we have to be as global society we have to be told that um something's got to change else the planet we love isn't gonna um be able to help us anymore and support us so to elevate the message to these platforms that um, are sort of more, you know, there's a lot more f- either physical or virtual footfall, depending on whether it's an event or a Netflix. Um, you're just going to reach more people and potentially have more effect. Like, let's say the, you know, the future generations who might have the answers or the, um, we know the art, we know the solutions, but they might have the innovations that can facilitate us reaching the solutions someone might see that on Netflix and be inspired, you know, like that's amazing. And that's again, what I was saying about you have to work with the big, um, you have to just work with everyone. You can't really alienate people in this transition to trying to be better because it, obviously if you have a bigger slice of the market or the bigger slice of eyeballs on a screen, you're going to um, see more, more people are going to see you. More people might be inspired by you. More people will follow your example, you know, you did mention celebrities earlier. Can you think of any celebrities that actually are good role models in this respect? I mean, so many of them seem to be total wastrels <laughs> and, and really crummy in that respect. So I'm, I'm sort of trying to think of any celebrity that that might actually be a good role model. Oh, God. I mean, I think... Sorry if I completely destroyed know. your business model. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I... I Thank, um, I don't actually know that many that many um, celebrities. Like my celebrity crush is Neil deGrasse Tyson, the astrophysicist, and no one really even knows who he is. But if you're listening, Neil, <laughs> um, I um, God, there are, there are loads like that to talk about. Um, the green carpet fashion awards, every and um, challenge more and more celebrities come to us and they're like, how can we dress more sustainably? And I think that. Ca- I choose to see that's a really good thing because it means that their fan base will see that they're wanting to be more sustainable. But I suppose there are some real leaders, 
such as, oh God, sorry, this is really embarrassing for me. I, I can't think of any names of celebrities. Mm-mm. Well, I suppose Olivia's a bit famous and she's obviously great. <laughs> I'll let you off with that one. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Why, why, she's well, famous for? Um, starting the Green Carpet Fashion Awards and obviously, shout, um, you know, relentlessly um, trying to get people a living wage in supply chains. That's her. That was her sort of main um, calling, I suppose. But now she's obviously started equating trying to um, help brands be better. But um, yeah, God, I can't believe I couldn't name a, um, any celebrities. That's really embarrassing. Could you hear the crickets? <laughs> I was thinking, I was about to say like Mark Gruffalo and stuff, but I just... <laughs> it's a real blind spot for me. I'm so sorry. I can tell you loads about chemicals, but I just can't talk. I don't know anything about celebrities. Celebrities are interesting, though, because mm. what their main purpose is usually to promote themselves, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're to increase their fame, to sustain their fame. So I guess some of them, cynically speaking, might like to embrace the sort of green wave and sustainability issues. Because that might sort of help them with a new angle for being famous. So, yeah, no, definitely. There's always going to be a bit, isn't there? That. Yeah. Mm. We can we can move on from there. Oh, amazing! Well, once um, a girl at uni said to me, "Oh, Philly, you're doing all this eco shit, aren't you?" And I was I've never forgotten that because I'm just like that is exactly what I'm like. Eco shit is like just a superfluous marketing trend sustainability <laughs> is actually trying to you know make things more sustainable it's not eco shit like i was like babe come on that's interesting because she might have been seeing it as sort of this month's thing mm, mm-hmm. so the eco shit this month is the organic cotton next month and the the higgs msi approved fibers of the month after or whatever yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yes. that, but that is interesting because I mean, how do we ensure that this isn't just a passing fad or a trend, and that this is how we're going to do things better over years and decades to come? Oh God, I mean, if the brands who obviously, in my opinion, are the perpetrators are a key perpetrator of this, um, if they're not going to listen to the scientists who are saying we need to get a bloody move on and stop producing all this crap and try and produce more sustainably and use renewable energy and all the stuff that we know that we've spoken about. Um, If they're not going to listen to that, and if their brand-dominated definition of sustainability isn't working, which clearly it isn't, then policy needs to step in, and we need to make sure that policy is um, accurate and fit for purpose. Like, we need to... Someone need, we need to have someone to come and tell off the brands, and if they're not going to, if they're not going to listen to the science and the reason, maybe we need to hit them where it hurts and start financial sanctions, or I don't know. I want to do a lot worse. Some of them, but um, but obviously I'm not a policymaker. Thank God, I suppose. But um, but yeah, it's um, I think that. We, I think that the only, I keep going round and round and round, and I think that the only thing that they're going to listen to is money and um, whether or not they're breaking the law. I think that's a fair evaluation, yeah. 
at the end of the day, that's where they notice it. Yeah, yeah. There is something that makes me wonder whether it is a bit of a fad, because I see quite a few new brands starting up, mm. um, a sort of susty brands. Um, some of them I have no problem with at all. They appear totally genuine. They are good people starting something small, doing things properly, good fabrics, made to order, good focus on doing things right. Other brands, typically more sort of seasoned industry professionals who see that, ah, let's get into this sustainable look and basically start making loads of stuff, well, under a new description. And that strikes me as wrong in a period when we're pretty much in agreement that we have to make less. So we're going to save the planet through making more shirts out of polyester made from recycled plastic that's been fished up from the ocean. Yeah, it's funny that because obviously you shouldn't be, we, we should all be trying to make less stuff. Well, we don't make any stuff. Um, it's very easy for me as a consultant to be like, oh, yeah, do this, do that. I don't have to actually do it, you know, like, so that's great for me. But I'm, I feel like for the, if there are any new fashion, but fair enough, if people want to be creative and start a new brand and do, do their stuff, that's their prerogative, I suppose in the free market but it's really easy starting a new brand to embed more responsible practices into your operations so there's really i think not no excuse no no excuse there's no excuse for um starting a brand now i think and not integrating sustainability into the heart of what you're doing what i feel sorry for is the brands who have been going for almost 100 years you have to now retrofit everything and unpick supply chains and um, do all that. I mean, it has to be done. Some things, we've all got to do something. We've got to be brave. But um, that is, you know, a logistical nightmare, really, isn't it? So, so I feel bad for them, but it has to be done. And then I just think, yeah, I just would, I'd just be, if I was doing a new brand, I'd just be designing something that's, I'd try and make my own system, actually. And sort of like maybe instead of having to wait for the recycling infrastructure to scale and for the um, innovate, recycling innovation to be, um, you know, funded and um, yeah, given money to, I'd make my own system where I'd use, mon- I'd use all of the circular design principles, then get everything sent back to me where I'd then deal with it, my, all of the waste myself and sort of try and like have this ma- fantastic like mechanical cutter that like cuts down all of the, um, fibers if they can't be um, upcycled in their immediate sense and then I'd mi- spin my own fibers and I'd have a complete system and maybe that could then become really famous and become the norm so then the other brands are forced to have to do something similar I mean it's again it's me being a <laughs> toxic optimist <laughs> it sounds to me like there's a frustrated maker living inside you <laughs> yeah well like, maybe I miss my drawing and my textile design but um yeah, this is what I was meant to do, I think. So. There are a number of brands that do say that they will take back your unwanted garments when you're finished with them. Mm. I noticed you shaking your head and making a bit of a face there. Yeah. Again, it's a really nice – it's like loads of things. It's a tool, like a knife, let's say. 
you can use it to whittle wood and make a house, but then you could also use it to cause damage to someone. So it's about how it's used and the general concept of take-back schemes, great, like perhaps reduces the volume of post-consumer waste just being, you know, flooded into landfill and or incinerated and wasted and letting valuable materials go to waste. But, and there are some brands who are doing it really well and nicely and not using it as a vehicle for greenwashing. But then there are other brands who just have these big old bins in their in their stores where people th- put their stuff in, which is, I suppose, a little bit less bad than just chucking it straight in the bin. But they will end up somewhere. And if it's a fast fashion brand, it's likely that those clothes won't be able to be processed by waste handlers. They won't be able to really be resold because they aren't, they're kind of planned obsolescence. Like they aren't made by, with super good quality fibers that will last multiple life cycles. They're sort of designed to be replaced like fast food or Kleenex. Like, you know, they're disposable basically. And um, so they're likely to end up in places like the Atacama Desert or um, in places like the um, markets in Ghana or anywhere. It's not a problem unique to those, um, to Chile and Ghana. They're bloody everywhere, these um, post-consumer textile markets. In Ghana, they have, um, I watched a documentary where um, the narrator guy said that in Ghana, they're called a brony wawu, clothes of the dead white man, um, because they're just, and they're just like, it's a huge thing, like it's been desecrating the local kente cloth, because obviously if, if um, obviously money is an issue in the world and um, there's economic injustices and stuff. And so some people, if you can afford to clothe your family cheaper, you'll, you'll take that choice. You'll, and um, that might actually be buying um, clothes that have been shipped from another country, um, it, you know, because they couldn't have been sold in the charity shops like the Abroni Wawu. And, um, and then it sort of has, can have knock-on effects where it leads to like the kente cloth being desecrated. But then also in the, sorry, go ahead, I rambled. I did notice something in that documentary as well, because they were griping about the poor quality mm-hmm. of the clothes that they were receiving in the bales, which of course they were paying good money for because that was their business. They'd buy a bale, mm. open it up and try to sell off the bits, but so much of what they were receiving was just rubbish yeah oh god yeah it's um it is like just how some people think that phones are designed to break so that you buy another one so it's um a lot of fast fashion and it's not just designed to break but it's perceived to um also become no longer relevant so it's planned and perceived obsolescence because of the trends and the poor quality materials but we used to have like two seasons a year and now we have like well there's people like Sheehan dropping 9,000 new um, product lines every single day it's it's madness it's a nuclear reaction really you did mention that there were some companies that had genuinely good schemes where you could send back stuff what, what are they doing differently uh, I suppose they they're probably there's a really great a uh, little thing that's going on in Italy with them. I'm not, I think it's called Phil Pucci. And they make Reverso yarn, which is um, basically made from pre and post consumer wasted wool, largely cashmere, but there is some, um, some non cashmere wool as well. And it's sort of all fizzled down and then re spun into, fizzled wasn't a technical word, by the way, um, but then spun into um, new recycled yarns. 
And so then, in theory, those can be, once garments have been made of this reverse yarn, they can be put back in as post-consumer waste into that so that then it can, the cycle can perpetuate. And things like that are really cool. And then there's also people who are doing take-back schemes where you can, where they sort of, where the products are better quality so they can be given a second life and they could even be um what's the word i suppose fixed or um sort of touched up and then um they'll be more sort of you know it'll be more viable to to sell them or there's um yeah sometimes i can't remember who it is but there's definitely someone out there i think it might be a footwear company that um sort of takes components and can use them for other parts so it's sort of like that's classic circular economy thinking that's like um designing for disassembly and sort of thinking about each component and how it can last as long as possible and so it's been like oh no my trainer's got a hole in it i'm gonna throw it all out like strikes me that that does mean that you're i mean you, you have to be managing to get back the bits you need mm. so you must have a pretty regular supply of cashmere coming in which means that you've got a lot of people throwing out their cashmere but you also have to have a lot of people wearing out those specific shoes which you can reuse the parts from yeah they're probably isn't perfect it might might not scale very well unless you are a sort of brand that has a very good connection with your customers yeah well, this is the thing. None of the solutions are ever going to work in silo. There's no silver bullet. We all, there's all, there's things, there's basically opportunities everywhere. Like this textile and fashion industry, it's like a, I always say it's like an interconnected, like crystal maze spider web. You can sort of, it, even every day, a cotton's impact, let's say, or every day, a product's impact could be different depending on the day it was produced. Like everything is, everything is a variable. So therefore, uh, go ever like there's not going to be one solution that's going to fix everything the only solution is try and be nicer to the environment and people and reduce your harm or completely you know what's the word nix your harm don't do it um and that's the only thing and so as long as you keep that in your mind every single little um sort of tributary of options or solutions if you keep to the general rule of, you know, do good, avoid evil, then it's going to, that's the solution. There's not, you won't, we won't be able to recycle our ways out of this mess, but recycling can have its strengths and solutions. We're not going to organic our way out of this mess. We're not going to um, design for disassembly out of this mess. There's, it's like a harmony of solutions, but it has, we have to be harmonized. We have to be, um, you know, working together and trying to and all consciously trying our bloody best i got a little bit stuck there when you said don't do evil which is i think it's the it's the golden rule in christianity no it was also what google set out with that was the sort of their leading thing and then they sold all our data to the advertisers oh my God. <laughs> Stop. see everything is just it's just Trust a nightmare no one. yeah <laughs> Oh my God! Everything gets appropriated, doesn't it? But but like you're saying, I mean, it, really, it is. I mean, it should be simple. I mean, make good stuff that lasts and can be sold or reused and isn't bad for the environment. And I mean, part of that is also making stuff that people will like and enjoy. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's kind of where the fashion cycle also screws things up because the trainers you bought last week aren't cool this week. Mm-hmm. Hence, you might sell them, but three weeks from now, no one wants them. Yeah, exactly. And then I think it becomes quite a psychological issue, doesn't it? Like the aspirational marketing and stuff. So there's some people who that sort of stuff just won't work on. Um, and so, and then, so I think that if maybe if you, if oh, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but if you, we're sometimes the marketing manipulates us into thinking that we'll be so happy if we buy this pair of trainers and then we'll look like shit in them the next week. So we have to buy another one. Um, and that's just not like it's manipulative. Like our psyches are being manipulated sometimes through marketing, like the limbic system, the bit that controls our emotions. Some of the advertisements are targeted to manipulate that and sort of make us, you know, feel like horny or hungry or miserable or fat or any of that stuff that makes us buy things. Um, and it's just, it's just so, um, that's a real concern actually, just how manipulative the marketing can be. Because no one needs a new pair of trainers every week, do they, for God's sake? No. I don't even think athletes do. But I often think that given how many years sci- the science of marketing has been evolving mm-hmm. and the tools they have today with our search histories and whatnot, I think it's remarkable that we're not buying more shit than we do because it they are on us all the time and they know us better than we know ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, that's hor- that's horrific, isn't it? Oh god, they always know. So how can you resist when before you even know you wanted it you're being presented with your next grail? <laughs> I think probably just I just get um Sometimes, you know, the impulse buys at um, a supermarket when you're waiting at the till and you're like, oh, God, how could I have left here without a chocolate bar or like a cereal bar or a packet of gum? Like that's essentially a virtual form of this marketing where things flash up and it's they've been triggered. They've been orchestrated to trigger us into being impulsive. So I just sort of try and I personally have to think about things a lot before I do them. Because if I do them on the first instance, I'd be living in Kazakhstan right now, or I'd be, I would be doing something completely different because I'm so impulsive. A lot of humans are quite impulsive. Um, mine's because my ADHD, but I don't know why. You know, clearly it works um, for neurotypical people as well, can't quote. And um, so I just think, like, if anyone suffers from being impulsive as well, I just sort of think about, think really hard about whether you need it and try and imagine yourself like. In a, in a social setting where you'd actually need it or whether you'd use it again, do you think it would be in your wardrobe in like X number of years or would you wear it X number of times? Um, and if the answer to that's no, then scroll on down. Don't um, don't click. Don't re-click. And, or just don't, you know, yeah, just don't, um, don't buy into it. We are kind of made to feel like bad consumers if we're not buying enough stuff these days. Yeah. I suppose, well, it depends where you're looking. Like, if you're in it, let's say in the mar- in the markets and in the fashion world, like, you're not, then perhaps you are led to, and like food and other stuff, then perhaps you are led to think that if you aren't consuming a lot, then you aren't 
performing as a consumer. But in my um, my day to day, I just don't get that, and a lot of my peers don't get that either. Like, I don't know whether it's because we're we have you know we're doing other things or something, but like we just don't. Everyone buys like second like we're probably for the other part that I just mentioned we're probably bad consumers because we don't actually consume a lot like we all sort of have like clothes swaps at the office and like um all shares we have our own basic unofficial rental platform where like if someone's got a wedding coming up we're all like oh, okay I've got this amazing dress I think it would look great on you like just borrow it borrow it um and obviously there's loads of we're not this is not unique to EcoAgent like um but we all buy like loads of secondhand stuff. Like, um, there's one lovely girl, who's one of my best friends at work, who always um, has like 60s stuff. That's like, she just loves buying like vintage 60s things. And it's just, um, yeah, it's quite rare to get like first hand stuff in the office, really, I'd say. So we're probably quite bad consumers in that sense. But in the sustainability sense, we're good consumers because we're consuming responsibly. That is actually an interesting point, because if she's liking 60s stuff, that's sort of kind of before things went bad. But much of the sort of vintage, which is super popular now, and what you find for sale, is from when it went bad, say from the 80s and onwards. So you have all these plastic tracksuits, and it's when it's, yeah. I mean, it's stuff that really should have been incinerated. <laughs> And that's not just because of poor fibres, but also, of course, style. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> oh, you've gone with my mum. She hated my um, vintage 80s shell suits. Oh. <laughs> but that's that's something that isn't really mentioned. No. At all. No, it's true. It's true. Because obviously, yeah, that you they look, the quality of the clothes look like almost box fresh. Because it's just, they're made so well. And like they weren't made to be chucked away that next week. Like I, str I don't think that they'll be. Is this the death of vintage? Like what? Oh my god, what's the vintage going to be in like fifty years? Well, there's certainly going to be enough box fresh stuff around because there's so much unworn <laughs> shit being tossed out. Yeah, that's fair. But I can't. I mean, I'd love to find proper vintage stuff mm -hmm. from say the sixties and backwards. Yeah. 30s stuff. But I mean, there's just, it's not around unless you're some sort of specialist, really specialist place. I think she's very into it. She's ve like, she, she is very, like, I think she goes to the right places, knows the right people. Sorry, I made that sound like it was an illicit underworld activity, but no, she, um, like, I think all her stuff's genuine. And there's a girl at work who also has a Burberry coat before it became Burberry. It's that old. Well, I mean, that is a it's a, a massive change in the view on things when older is actually cooler than buying something new. Mm. Yeah, because obviously we're all in like not all of us, but a lot of people are individualists, and sort of the decision making is sort of in our psyches is dependent on like how will this benefit me and my family. So we all want to be individual, and then obviously there are collectivist cultures in the world as well, and I think. Um, the individualist cultures acted more like the collectivist cultures, perhaps um, the earth would be more sustainable. We'd be more sustainable, should I say. The earth's doing great. We're just ruining it. Um, but I think that because there's this proliferation of um, sort of fast fashion and identical sort of stuff like, 
remember that dress that was going around on social media that everyone wore and it was like like people on we were following it at work um the news story i hasten to add um and someone that said on their commute that they saw it four times in the same train carriage and basically every it seemed like every person in london had this dress that like looked good on all sorts on every shape and size like it just looked good on anyone and so therefore everyone bought it and that doesn't really satisfy an individualist's psyche really because we all want to be different so in a world full of cheap fast fashion people i think are increasingly looking towards things that are a bit different and like there's less chance of you turning up you know turning around in a pub toilet and seeing someone with you wearing the exact same outfit as you that reminds me of when you ask someone what style they have and no one will give you a straight answer because everyone considers their style to be so unique <laughs> and individual oh god exactly it will always be a sort of log list of influences and I've done that myself a few times. I look back at them and I think, oh, God, cringe. <laughs> oh, God, same. Sometimes I can't even go back there in my mind. Now, I did drop a little morsel in the water uh, about 15 minutes ago, I think, when I mentioned uh, the plastic from the sea. Oh, yeah. Which has become kind of a thing now. Uh, so companies are really giving their reason for existing because they're doing so much good fetching plastic up from the sea and repurposing it into stuff. How does that sort of fit into the scheme of things? So, someone asked me this question the other day, so I, I'm well-versed, so I went tangent. So basically, there's like, I think that there's tiers of synthetic fibres. So obviously, virgin is quite low tier in terms of sustainability. The mid-tier, but only by a margin, is recycled PET from plastic bottles, but only from a, only in the sense that we're not extracting virgin oil. But then obviously beyond that, it's a dive, in my opinion. Yikes. Um, but then above that, there is recycled polyester that has genuinely come from marine and ocean-bound plastic, like the ghost fishing nets, like um, through beach cleanups. And it, these um, yarns do exist. Like Some of these yarns' sole purpose, really, is their philanthropic purpose, is to remove plastic from the ocean because obviously that is really bad for um the planet basically it sort of re completely ruins the ocean obviously in the physical sense that it's full of like more plastic than fish or it will be um by 2050 according to ellen MacArthur estimates but then also like plastic has like lipophilic and lipophobic ends and it, and it can sort of like attract pollution to other forms of pollution to it and it sort of like turns into, you know how surfacants in soap have a hydrophobic and a hydrophilic end, which sort mm. of, that's what creates the bubbles because it's sort of like, it's like a magnetic charge at each end that one of them repels water and is friendly to it. And one of them loves it. No, one of them hates it. And wait, I just really got that confused. One of them loves water and one of them doesn't love water. And they sort of react and that's what makes the bubbles. Imagine that happening with pollution in the, in the water because of lipophobic and lipophilic, like the fats. It sort of draws in loads of stuff. And so you get these sort of like the great Pacific garbage patch where like it's all linked together and sort of it, it's not just plastic in there. It's also like loads of different kinds of pollution. So obviously to remove that from the ocean and make a usable fiber out of it is great because it's one, you're not using oil and two, you're actually cleaning the environment. But then you could also go a step beyond that 
And there are some really cool innovators out there who are actually making synthetic fibres from carbon sucked from the air, from air pollution, are turning air pollution into yarns. And obviously, again, with all of these fibres at the moment, they're still likely to all shed microplastics and they're still, um, will potentially have a compromised biodegradability. But hopefully by the time that these air pollution ones, the complete Rolls Royce of synthetic fibres, in my opinion, have scaled, hopefully in tandem with that, the recycling infrastructure will have scaled. So we'll be able to, on mass scale, turn fibres, post-consumer fibres into fibres again. So instead of being it being like 1%, it could be much, much higher. Let's just aim for 100. Why not? That makes me wonder whether we're we're actually creating more problems or more solutions because we we keep creating new problems which we have to then solve. And it's always the recycling of the new stuff is just a little bit behind. Um, I did The reason I wondered about the plastic from the oceans is I was watching this um, new documentary called Plastics Why?, which is not available on YouTube, sadly, but it's on many TV stations around the world. And the amount of plastic which was just bobbing around or being deposited in landfills was, it was so depressing. Uh, It used to be that China received lots of plastic. They refused. So now it's a chase to the bottom to find places where we will still receive it. And which basically become a criminal enterprise where people are just being paid to burn it. Oh, God. I'm writing that down. Plastic. So you could say that uh, fetching plastic up from the oceans is doing good, but it's also will never finish because there's just so much plastic being made and thrown away all the time. Mm. It's really bummer, isn't it? Um, (laughs) it's, it's, It's obviously very depressing, isn't it? Like, you know. I'm smiling, but that's to stop me from crying. Um, <laughs> we, I think, again, we need to put a cap on some some sort of cap on finite resource extraction and natural capital depletion. Like, there's got to be if people only listen to money and law, can we not just make money and law involve them in a negative way with natural capital and finite resource mm-hmm. depletion? That's the problem with plastic is also down to the same sort of big companies as we see in in the fashion world. So Coca-Cola, they're just dumping these bottles out. They could solve a lot by having a return scheme. I know. I know, but it's again, it's about those big companies retrofitting. They're not going to do it, are they, sadly, at the moment, unless they're they're compelled to legally or financially by the powers that be and the law. Is there anything we have not covered that you'd like to cover? I, I don't think so. You know, you just feel a bit quite, empty. Quite eclectic, this. <laughs> yeah, no, not, no, <laughs> no. Just, um, I've had an incredible time, but um, I'm just feeling it's. There's, I'm feeling a bit depleted in the sense that what are the solutions? You know, apart from do good and try and do less bad. And don't sell your search history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh God. So what's in uh, in the plan book for EcoAge the next year or two? How do you hmm. see things going forward? I think we obviously want to keep 
doing doing what we're doing, but also continue to be and maybe even increase our level of solutions focused. Because too often is it like mudslinging and sort of like theoretical sustainability in academia, sort of like what trying to one up each other without getting um without really getting anywhere. You know when like you leave um you know when you're at uni and you know all the theory of and you think that you know everything about life and you're like, oh God, I'm so angry. Everyone's everyone's wrong but me. Um and then you get into the real world and you're like, ah right. Okay. So that's why this isn't working. Da, 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 da. Um I think that we all just live on this real world. So we need to just start working together. I'd like to see everyone including EcoAge, all working together, networking, sharing research, like trying to, as global citizens, all trying to actually elevate the game and try and, you know, accelerate the transition towards circular economy, um, departure from finite resource extraction and consumption, um, you know, more in, more engagement in regenerative practices, regenerative production, and, and not leave any nation or brand really behind because everyone's got something to change um we'll see some people have more to change than others i'm not deluded but um i want to see everyone networking and co-creating and stop stop trying to use um sustainability as an ip it's actually a necessity basically really uh, everyone agreeing on a common agenda and working towards it together yes but with every stakeholder and societal stakeholder involved, not just the brands telling everyone that they're that this is this is our new solution to become more sustainable, because they're not critical enough themselves. We need to have consumers demanding it. Obviously, it's not completely on them. We need to have policy enforcing it, and you know, regulating it. We need the brands to actually take a long, hard look at themselves. Um, a lot of them and trying to and actually, sometimes it will be reverse engineering their, you know, sustainability into their stuff. But you've got to do it. Um, and so then hopefully we'll all be able to be within a chance of reducing um, Earth overshoot day and not getting to that four, four Earths worth of resources by 2050. Yeah, because the only guys that are gearing up for that are really Musk and Bezos making their spacecraft. <laughs> oh, my God, I know. And they won't take me with them. <laughs> No, they won't take me either. Well, we want to okay. go. No, nah. I'm okay. <laughs> um, now, I asked you whether you had anything you wanted to mention in closing. I, I do have something myself today, which is a first. In 99 episodes, I'm, this is the first time I've had something I wanted to mention. It goes back to right at the start where you were talking about using your own urine to uh, oh, fix yeah. dyes. Yeah. Sorry to, re- no, no. to remind, remind you of that. No, no. Uh, but when I was doing the episode with uh, Harris Tweed way back, uh, one of them recounted this story about a family where they were weaving on the Outer Hebrides and they were dyeing their own wool. So the family would all collect their urine in a tub outside the door. And there was this one time when they'd had a guest who had rather too much to drink. And as he was leaving, he stumbled. <laughs> <laughs> the family was devastated. They couldn't die for weeks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's good stuff. God. So it's 
not the first time you've heard about dying with your own piss. No, Hetz, I was not shocked at all. I was just (laughs) thinking, there is a traditional dyer. Oh, amazing. (laughs) Absolutely love it. God, well, what an honour. No, thanks. Just thanks for having me. I um, love textiles. (laughs) Okay, Philly. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And uh, bye-bye for now. Bye. Thank you. And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.